Hello and welcome to The Political Party. This episode features Gordon Brown. As you'll know, I've been trying to get Gordon on the show for many years. And this was recorded at a packed McEwen Hall in the centre of Edinburgh. The atmosphere you will be able to hear in every second of this recording. He got a hero's welcome uh, from a city that he spent much of his life in and studied in. And in a hall where he graduated. This is phenomenal. It's everything you would expect from Gordon Brown emotional and intellectual heft. The way he talks about poverty and how exercised he is about preventing child poverty is deep concern about the economic situation we find ourselves in and what needs to be done. But as well as that, a phenomenal raconteur and a brilliant storyteller. And there are moments in this that are just absolutely hilarious. It's a full-on treat. Before I share with you this magnificent interview, um, I'm doing two more of these recordings at the Edinburgh Festival on Monday, the 15th of August, at the Gilded Balloon with Scottish Labour leader Anna Sawa, who is always great fun. And on Monday, the 22nd of August, again at the Gilded Balloon with the SNP's Joanna Cherry, who's one of the most talented politicians, not just in West Minster, but in the land, and always speaks her mind. There will be two fantastic recordings in London when we return. I can announce some more guests. I mean, these lineups are becoming absolutely incredible. On Monday, the 19th of September, I'm joined by Emily Maitlis and John Sopel. That will be a very special evening. On Monday, the 3rd of October, Mick Lynch from the RMT. On Monday, the 17th of October, I'm joined by Matt Hancock. And on Monday, the 7th of November, I'm joined by David Dimbleby. So the first four back are absolutely incredible. More guests to be announced. I always put a, a link to where you can buy tickets in the blurb and go to mattford.com slash live. And of course, my show continues at the Edinburgh Festival. Clowns to the left of me, jokers to the right. And thank you to all all of you who've already been, it's been a wonderful festival so far, but by far the highlight so far has been the hour at the McEwen Hall with Gordon Brown. Enjoy. Thank you very much. Oh, thank you very much, Edinburgh. Welcome. Thank you. Welcome to a very, very special edition of the political party. Today's guest is someone I've wanted to interview for a very long time and is one of the finest politicians, not only that Scotland and the UK has produced, but the world has. Very few politicians will achieve not just the level of office that today's guest did, but have the impact that they did. The longest period of economic growth in our country's history and a crucial economic in intervention that rescued the global economy. Ten years as Chancellor, three years as Prime Minister. Please raise the roof for Gordon Brown! <laughs> Hi, Matt. How are you doing? Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank, thank you very much. I, I suppose I should be welcoming Matt to Edinburgh. Because Edinburgh is where it all started for me. Um, this is where I matriculated as a student. This is where I graduated. Uh, very near here is, is where I addressed my first public meeting. And uh, two people turned up. Uh, and the chairman said he had a better thing to do, so he left, so there was only one. <laughs> this is also where, uh, near here, where someone came to me and asked me to stand for Edinburgh Council for the first time for election. I said, look, I don't know anything about local government finance. And you probably think when I was chancellor, I never knew anything about it anyway. And he said, look, Paul, if we were going to win the seat, you wouldn't be the candidate. <laughs> and very near here, the McEwen, McEwen, McEwen Hall's here and the Royal Infirmary's there. I arrived at Edinburgh University at 16 and uh, some years ago, let's say. And uh, immediately, I landed up in hospital with an eye injury from playing rugby. So I spent most of, well, much of my first two years in the Royal Infirmary. And it was these old Victorian wards. But I do tell you this, the health service was very, very different then. At 8 o'clock every evening, just across the road there, the nurses came round with a trolley, and it was full of drinks. So you got offered uh, beer or spirits <laughs> or Guinness. And, you know, free health service, free beer. <laughs> And uh, just up the road is where I had my first uh, flat and w when I was a, was a student. And I'd gone to London to a conference and had gone back and the flat was burgled. And the police were around there and they came to the room which went for my study. And the guy said, totally ransacked, Mr. Brown, totally ransacked. And I had to tell him it hadn't been touched at all. 
and the other thing, just to start about Edinburgh, which I owe so much to Edinburgh, when I was uh, a student, just finishing as a student, I worked for Scottish television for a bit. And one of the things we did was cover the Festival Fringe. And Scottish television was always trying to save money, so they're always trying to get the cheapest uh, act. So you'd be far too expensive for them, Matt. <laughs> so they got this amateur drama company that come up from uh, Cambridge or Oxford something. And at 6.30, they had this show. And so they had the news reporting Scotland, what was it called, Scotland Today at 6 o'clock. And then at 6.30, they usually went to the, the news headlines. And so they said, here are the news headlines. And this drama group said, the world will end in three minutes. <laughs> the Queen's corgi has rabies. And there was sort of consternation, particularly all over the old people's homes. Uh, people seemed to be more worried about the rabies than they were about the, about the world end. And of course, STV had a great sort of thing. If, if people complained about a programme, so people kept phoning in. Of course, the director got sacked and moved on because he had made a terrible mistake. But people started phoning in. And of course, you had to say STV, so j just give us all the details about your complaint. Uh, first of all, what's your television licence number? <laughs> all the phones go down. <laughs> So that's my experience of Edinburgh. <laughs> well, thank you. It's good to have a potted history of the, uh, of the city, Gordon. Obviously, we meet in uh, kind of difficult times when the economy is top of the list. And this is something that everyone's talking about, the cost of living crisis. And obviously, you have experience of intervening and using the economic might of the UK state to save banks in order to effectively save the public purse. I mean, you wrote, you wrote an article in The Guardian yesterday about the severe poverty that's going to hit this country, particularly later this year. What do you think politicians, Labour or Tories, should be doing to try and alleviate the problems that we face at the moment? Well, it's our first duty. I mean, the poverty we're seeing around us and the poverty we're going to see from October, because energy prices are going to go up dramatically, is something that I never thought we'd return to in my lifetime. You know, I grew up in Kakadi, which was a mining town uh, and a textiles town, and I saw unemployment and poverty as I grew up, and I, one of the reasons I wanted to be in politics was to do something about it. But I thought we'd never go back to these conditions, because you've got, you've got children going to school ill-clad and hungry, you've got pensioners having to choose between feeding themselves and feeding the, the meter, You've got nurses, this is what's outrageous, nurses having to queue up at food banks after doing a back-breaking shift at the hospital. And, and, you know, there's only so much that charity can do. And we've got great voluntary organisations where I come from and everybody's trying to do their best and consumer advice centres, food banks are doing a huge amount, but they cannot make up for the loss of benefits uh, that poor families, particularly pensioners, but also families with children are, are, are facing. And so we're going to this crisis, and it's a moral crisis because it's about our duties to other people. And I, I'm saying this week, there has got to be an emergency budget. It's got to be soon. Now, I know Liz Truss and Richie Sunak and Boris Johnson don't really get on, uh, and I'm not sure they're going to talk to each other ever again, but they should get together this week, agree an emergency budget, and if they don't, I think Parliament should be recalled immediately because this is a national crisis that needs emergency action, and it should happen now. Obviously, when you were Prime Minister, you, you took that action in the financial crash uh, and uh, effectively rescued the global economy. And Rishi Sunak, at the start of the pandemic, took emergency action through furlough. I mean, it, it, would it be unfair to say that Sunak is the heir to Brown? <laughs> <laughs> Look, we, we, had, we had some difficult times in 2009, and it, it was incredibly difficult to deal with a problem because just like this crisis people didn't quite understand what was happening to start with and we had this idea it was the banks that had caused the crisis but not only had they caused the crisis but they were completely undercapitalized and we'd either have to nationalize them or we'd have to uh, find a way of making sure that they could be become again the nerve center of a financial economy and so we tried to win support in America and Europe, and we went sort of, I went around the world to try and win support for action that we needed to take. And we created this organization, the G20, the 20 leading economies to do something about it. But it wasn't very easy. Can I, can I just tell you, I went to Paris just after Lehman Brothers collapsed. It was a sort of uh, the biggest uh, banking collapse there had been. And people were thinking all the other banks were to collapse. We called this meeting in Paris, and I go to Paris and I met Sarkozy, the president of France, and then I met Merkel there, the Chancellor of Germany, but also the head of the European Union, Berlusconi from Italy, Trichet, the central bank. We all sat around this table for an hour, and I was trying to persuade them. And they thought this was an American crisis. It wasn't anything to do with Europe. So we really didn't get an agreement. And then we brought for coffee. And then suddenly I had Berlusconi, 
saying, amateurs, he said. He was speaking in French, and I'm trying to speak in French. C'est son amateurs, he said. And we thought, here's Berlusconi, businessman, politician. He's got the answer to the crisis. And then he said, amateurs, he said. Don't they realize we have a press conference in one hour, and none of them have brought a makeup artist with them? <laughs> that, and that, 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 that was his contribution. And then, then I went to Brazil to meet all the South American leaders. I actually went there with Joe Biden, who, by the way, is a very nice guy, very, very nice guy. And, and we, we, we were down uh, there in, in Latin America, and uh, Lula says to me, um, he said, you know, he said, when I was, because he started off as trade unions, when I was an ordinary trade union member, he said, and people said things were really terrible, and, 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 and they asked me, who's to blame? I, I said, the government. He said, and then I, when I became the leader of the trade union movement, and things got worse, and people said, who's to blame? I said, the government. Then I became the opposition leader, and people said, who's to blame? I said, the government. And then I became the government. <laughs> and people asked me, who's to blame? He said, and I said, America. <laughs> and that's, that's what he said throughout the financial crisis. So we were dealing with a lot of very difficult people then, but we did have a plan. And you know, there is no international cooperation of any substance at the moment. You know, you cannot say the energy crisis is just a British crisis, it's a global crisis. You can't say the food crisis, and there is going to be famine in Africa, this, particularly in Africa this, this winter, and it's a tragedy because there is enough food in the world. Uh, but it's a global food crisis, and there's a global inflation crisis, and there's going to be a currency crisis quite soon. And so these are global problems that need global solutions, but we cannot get the leaders of the world to get, to get together. And the same thing here, of course, there is an urgency about action. And one of the things we realized is you've got to act quickly. You've got to be ahead of the curve. If you get behind the curve, you're completely out of it. And so we did prevent, I think, all the leaders coming together, a global depression coming out of the recession. But here, there doesn't seem to be any urgency about taking the action that's necessary. Where are our energy supplies going to come from this winter? Uh, what about the storage facilities that have been allowed to run down? Uh, what about, obviously, the, the, the subsidies that are necessary for, for families to be able to pay for the, their energy? What are the government doing about all these things? And all we hear about is tax cuts versus other tax cuts versus other tax cuts, and nobody who's poor is going to benefit from any of these tax cuts. That's why we need urgent action now, and it's global and it's national, and it's got to be both. And, One of the other world leaders that was around at the time that's still around is Vladimir Putin. Yeah. yeah. What was he like to deal with? <laughs> now, I met Putin first in 2006, and I was uh, in Russia and in Moscow at a meeting, and I met him at the Kremlin uh, when I was Chancellor of the Exchequer. This really sums him up, because I went into the room, and Putin is, if you look at Wikipedia or something, he's five foot seven. He's actually about five foot five, and he wears platform shoes. And he's sitting behind this big desk, and it's sort of up there. And then I'm directed to this armchair, which is actually, you just fall into it. <laughs> and you end up looking up at Putin. And he says, uh, and then he takes out his filing cards, he, like, the, like the KGB agent was. He takes out these cards and says, your name is, you were born on. And he wants you to think that he knows more about you than you know about you, yourself. And of course, it was all threats. Then, 2005-06, it was about he would sell his oil and gas to Asia if we didn't meet his terms in Russia. And it's exactly the same. You know that um, there was a group of American businessmen went to see him just soon after that. And he was shaking hands with them. And he was going round. And this is an absolute true story. And the, 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 the head of the, the New England Patriots, the, 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 the sports team in America, was one of the people there as part of this business delegation. And he was wearing this big ring, which was a New England Patriots ring. And he got, to, he got to Putin. Putin was shaking hands and said, that ring, it looks really good. And the guy sort of takes it off to show it to him. And Putin puts it in his pocket and walks away. <laughs> That's why we call it a kleptocracy. <laughs> and, and there was a huge debate in America. Uh, I know this for a fact from George Bush. There was a huge debate, should they ask for it back? <laughs> and they decided there was very little chance of getting it back. But, so, not quite the Elgin marbles, is it? Yeah, not like the, the only thing that Putin understands, honestly, is strength. Any sign of weakness, and he will exploit it. Now, we had this terrible episode, as you know, with Litvinenko, who was assassinated on the streets of London. And we knew that Putin was planning other assassinations. Uh, and he may still be planning other assassinations now. 
And so Putin was planning to send, just as he did at Salisbury, send people into Britain to do the assassination and then leave. And he had a number of people targeted. So we had to, we did not publicize, but I can say now, we had to take uh, direct action and threaten him and threaten uh, uh, all the diplomatic ties to be broken. We had uh, security uh, services protecting people for months, in some cases for years, because we knew they were targeted. Uh, but when the guard dropped, at Salisbury, which is about 10 years later. Of course, he was successful in one sense. He, he, he maimed uh, people, but of course, then people were killed as a result. And if you do not show strength against Putin, and that's what happened because of Crimea in 2014, the minute that the West had given in on Crimea in 2014, Putin thought, the first thing he thought would be there'd be no unity amongst the West. He then thought the Ukrainians wanted to welcome him. He had this idea that they thought of themselves as Russians. And then he thought he would only need uh, military police rather than armies to keep order. And none of these things proved to be uh, correct. But of course, we're in a, a long conflict here. It, you know, it's a hot conflict now. It could be a frozen conflict later. This will be a, a battle between uh, Russia and Ukraine as long as Putin is, is president. And I think we've got to prepare for Russia to be, dis well, we're going to decouple Russia from Russia. There's no choice but to, to do that. And at the same time, we've got to show strength. Otherwise, he will exploit any weakness. And it could be Moldova. It could be uh, other countries that he could uh, focus on if he was successful in, in, in Ukraine. So I, I think we've got to be very clear that uh, Russia will be a pariah state as long as Putin is president. And it's a tragedy for the world because there was a chance, and I think we made mistakes in the West, uh, to bring Russia in in the 1990s, but that chance has gone for the time being until Putin is, is removed from power. And it is possible. Uh, you know, uh, Stalin sort of died rather mysteriously. Khrushchev disappeared rather mysteriously. Brezhnev may have had a heart attack or not. Uh, Lenin, you know. So Russian leaders have got a habit of, of leaving under... Uh, unforeseen circumstances, let's put it like that. One of the other tactics of Russia is obviously to sow misinformation and, and discord in the West, and they do that partly through broadcasters like Russia Today and Sputnik, which set up here in Edinburgh for a while. When you were dealing with Alex Salmond all those years ago, did you ever think you would have ended up <laughs> as a I, chat I, show I, host on Russia Today? Are you trying to compare Alex Salmond to Mr Putin? <laughs> Uh, oh, I know which one I think is more honourable. <laughs> well, one is a dictator who will stop at nothing. <laughs> um, <laughs> uh, look, I, I, I don't think you deal with Scotland the way that uh, Liz Truss or Richie Sunak or uh, Boris Johnson deals with Scotland. I mean, look, I'm a patriot, but I'm not a nationalist. I mean, nationalism, to, patriotism is love of your country. Nationalism is seeing the world in terms of a struggle between us, us, us and them. Now, I know there's tensions always between Scotland uh, and, and England. You know, I, I went down to, when I was in, became an MP, there was this academic told me, he'd gone down to London just before me, and he said, he said to some English guy, he said, you must think of us Scots as very aggressive. And the reply was, we don't think of you at all. And that put him in his place. <laughs> And I will, I will always remember my first memory of a Scotland-England football match, and uh, I've been at a few, and I think you've been at a few, uh, 1962, I think it was. England 9, Scotland 3. Football, not rugby. <laughs> uh, and, and Scotland lost nine goals, and I was listening to it. You, you, you didn't have television then. It was on radio. I just could not believe what was happening, and there were players who played in that match who subsequently denied they were ever on the pitch. <laughs> And there was even people who scored goals, like Dave Mackay, who, who said he wasn't there. Uh, and the goalkeeper was Frank Haffey from Celtic, and he was a really lovely guy. And he was singing in the bath after the disaster. But things got so bad in Scotland, you know this, it's absolutely true. He had to emigrate, and he had to go to Australia to get away from the flag. What are you going to say, England? And, and, Dennis, Law, and Dennis Law was a footballer who went out to Australia 30 years later. So this was the 1990s. And Dennis Law meets Frank Haffey, and Frank Haffey's first question is, is it safe to come back? <laughs> and the answer was no. <laughs> uh, but, uh, you know, the, the, you, you know I, I was in Canada a few weeks ago, and I was speaking, and the, the former Prime Minister of Canada was there, and he was telling me, you know, your relationship with England is very similar to Canada's with America. You know, what we say is, uh, the Americans are our friends, whether we like it or not. <laughs> but but look, look, the only way that Britain can work is if people find a basis 
of, of talking together and working together and cooperating together. Look, you cannot have a successful Scottish economy without a successful British economy. You cannot have full employment in Scotland without full employment or near to full employment in the rest of the country. Our economies are so integrated that a million jobs are dependent on trade between Scotland and England. So instead of list, I mean, Liz, look, Liz Truss is trying to channel Mrs Thatcher, isn't she? She's trying to become the new Mrs Thatcher. And I'm waiting for someone to say, uh, you're no Mrs. Thatcher, I knew Mrs. Thatcher, you know what they said about John, John Kennedy. And, uh, and I did know Mrs. Thatcher, and I did meet her many times. In fact, the first time I met Mrs. Thatcher, she had stupidly said in the House of Commons she would meet any member of Parliament who had any grievance about what was happening to the constituency because of the recession. And so I just asked to meet her once every six months from then on. <laughs> And so I go in, I, this is absolutely true, I go into my first meeting with Mrs. Thatcher and she's in this room in the House of Commons that eventually I was lucky enough to occupy for a year or two. And, and she's sitting there and she says, Mr. Brown, she said, you've come to see me about the problems of Coden Beth and Recife. <laughs> and, and I said, I said, gently, I said, Cowden Beath and Recife. And she said, you, you said, you call it Cowden Beath? We have always referred to it as Codden Beth. <laughs> and she wanted to rename the towns in my constituency. <laughs> and eventually, she was, she was very ill at that time. She wanted to go to Chequers for the last time. And so she, we invited her there, and she comes to Chequers. And she, she's, she's starting to reminisce, and she's actually lost much of her memory, but she's saying things. She said, you know, she said, my relationship with Ronald Reagan, people always talk about this. And do you know what was the secret of my relationship with Ronald Reagan? She said, he was more afraid of me than I was of him. <laughs> hardly, hardly great friendship. But, but I would come back to Liz Truss. <laughs> and I think she's trying to take this sort of uh, domineering attitude that the best thing to, is to tell Scotland just to get lost. And, uh, you know, I'll not listen to you, I'll ignore you, I'll insult you, I'll do anything. And that is... Complete mistake, because the one person who's got a responsibility in the country to try to bring people together is the Prime Minister. And you've got to be in a position to say, look, let's cooperate on things where we can work together on. And you cannot uh, just say, for, you know, I'm not going to talk to you at all. It's, it's, it's quite a ridiculous position. And it's what this muscular unionism that Boris Johnson sort of practiced, where he sort of says, uh, you, know, you know, we're going to put up more union jacks, we're going to call the roads British roads and all that sort of stuff. It doesn't work. What you've got to do is respect that people have decided on different politicians and different leaderships and try and work with people. And the only way that the union uh, or the Britain will survive is if people uh, find better ways uh, to work together. And I think we, we, we can do that. We need to cooperate on the health services we did on vaccinations. We need to cooperate on jobs. And it's massively important that we're in renewables, we're in the digital industries. Scotland's got a great tradition of the Royal Infirmary shows in healthcare and inventions in health. And we could lead the world in these industries, but we'd be a power only in health as Scotland. We can be a superpower if we work as the whole of Britain. So I would uh, argue that the Tory leaders should think again and there should be a fresh start attempted in the relationship between the British government and Scotland. He's spilled the water. Bit of a long shot. Um, it, it's only water. <laughs> Nothing's wasted. You, um, you mentioned the Scotland-England football rivalry there. One of my favourite bits of footage from the new Labour era was you and Tony Blair watching an England game, and I think France 98, yeah. having a beer and fish and chips. Yeah. And I think it was either England-Tunisia or England-Columbia. And then obviously when you were Prime Minister, England would go to the World Cup and whatever else. Did you ever really want England to win? <laughs> <laughs> you know, I got, um, I got lambasted all across Scotland when after Scotland was knocked out of the previous World Cup to this, I said I hoped England won. And people said, that's awful. How can you say that? And I, but clearly, it's in our interest uh, that uh, England does, does well, particularly if Scotland's not, 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 not playing. And so I do think, you know, I've been at almost all these big matches. I've, I've seen Scotland play in the World Cup in Spain, in Italy. And I wasn't in Argentina, where, where, where as someone said, the players uh, played as if they'd never been introduced. That was, that, was, <laughs> that was so bad there. So I've watched Scotland play, and nobody can say that I'm uh, not a big supporter of, uh, of Scotland. But, but it, it's good for the whole country. I, I hope Wales does well. And I'm sure the whole audience will want Wales to do as well, <laughs> as well as England. So there we are. <laughs> 
So there's never a part of you watching that Columbia game thinking... Well, I don't, uh, you know... When <laughs> I, was, I was there at uh, Wembley when uh, I'm afraid uh, um, we missed... Uh, Gary, Gary uh, McAllister. McAllister missed the penalty. And that was a terrible day because Gascoigne then went up the pitch and scored, scored a goal. And I did think that night when I was talking to English supporters that they were becoming rather arrogant. <laughs> but, uh, but yes, the, the, it's, it's always a tension between Scotland and England, but, but you can find a way to work together. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. And obviously, you know, that, that footage of you and Tony Blair was from a period when Labour had been in opposition for so long. Yeah. And then the two of you as a partnership transformed Labour into just this election-winning machine that they haven't been since. It was a remarkable period. You as Chancellor give independence to the Bank of England. It's the longest period of economic growth. I mean, given how long you'd waited to get there, to then be at the pinnacle of British government as Chancellor for 10 and Prime Minister for 3 and all the change you were able to do... I mean, at first, it, it must have just been so exciting to finally win an election and be able to do all those wonderful things. It was. It was really funny because I talked to Tony on the afternoon of that election. And believe it or not, he thought we hadn't won. And we were about to have the biggest majority that anybody had since 1945. And everybody was so much on tenderhooks because in 1992, with Neil, we thought we were going to win and then, then we didn't. So people were very nervous. But then I just went in and I went into the Treasury... And the minute I went in, I said, we're going to make the Bank of England independent on Monday. And they said, it's a holiday on Monday. I said, well, OK, OK, Tuesday. <laughs> and then the permanent secretary said, oh, I think you've got to wait. We've got to consult. We've got to go around and we've got to talk to people. What about the cabinet and so on and so forth? I said, no, we're going, we're going, ahead. We're going ahead on Tuesday. And, uh, and we did go ahead on Tuesday and we just got down to work. And we, remember, we had a new deal for the young unemployed and for the long-term unemployed within a few weeks of getting into government. And that's why I say... You can move very quickly. And, and, and let me just say, we talked about a new Britain then, but I think the demand for a new Britain is bigger now. If you look around the whole of the country, it's far more economically progressive. Uh, people, even Brexit voters, you know, want to see big progressive economic change. We're far more socially egalitarian, and, and all these elements of racist, religious prejudice, I think, are, are starting to go, and certainly they're a very small minority of the country. And I think we're far more rooted in our local identities, you know, whether it's Manchester, Liverpool, Birmingham or Scotland, Wales, you know, everybody has a strong sense of local identity. And I think the, if you like, the makings of a new Britain that is really something we could be very proud of are there now. And I'd be very optimistic about Keir and others being able to project this idea of a new Britain that actually changes things over, overnight, starting perhaps with the House of Lords and all these things that we tried to do something about uh, but failed when we tried in the last 20 years. I think people are ready for change. I think people would like to close that place down and we'd like to uh, start to do something a bit more democratic uh, with it. <laughs> Some people want to close it down. Other people want to put Egveni Lebedev in there. You know, there are different, <laughs> there are different well, options. You, if you think Lebedev's a, a bad nominee, just look at the people that they're suggesting for the next list. And I, I think all over the next uh, few weeks, you're going to find speculation about uh, people who... I mean, Boris Johnson wants to give honours to the people who give him uh, dinners, who give him sort of drinks, who give him, you know, give him a bit of advice here and there, his lawyer, his, uh, you know... And I think you'll find that this becomes one of the biggest scandals since uh, Lloyd George. Remember, Lloyd George actually openly sold honours when he was Prime Minister, and he got kicked out in 1922, 100 years ago, because of that. I think he charged about, what was that, a million pounds for a peerage and 200,000 for a knighthood or something like, something like that. And he did it openly, so there was a Sale of Honours Act came in after that. And I think there's going to be a lot of uh, question marks over appointments that are going to be made to the Lords in the next few weeks. And I think it will probably make people think this, 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 is, this, this has got to, got to change. I mean, he's, he's appointed quite a few people who uh, you might say uh, do not meet the test of uh, let's say having uh, done great public service over the years <laughs> well I guess if the Prime Minister himself doesn't 
then he's <laughs> only appointed me <laughs> you. You've, you've said it. Just thinking about, I mean, as you know, I'm a, I was at school during the New Labour period. I thought you were going to say you were at school with Boris Johnson. <laughs> that, would, that would have been eaten. That would have been a heck of a... <laughs> if he'd have gone to my school, no one would have ever known who he was. There's no way he'd have got that far, he'd gone to my school. But uh, the government that you led and that you were a leading part of transformed life for people like me, um, from my sort of background. And I feel very emotional about that period of time and what you used government for. And when... I watch clips of YouTube when I'm drunk at night and watch you know, your speeches as Chancellor and Leader and reminisce about those great days. There's only 13 budgets. <laughs> but they were amazing. But I, the one thing that really strikes me is the talent that New Labour had at that time. You, Tony Gordon and Peter Mandelson, effectively like the Beatles. I won't ask you to pick which one would be which one, but were you sort of aware at the time that it, it was un a uniquely gifted cohort that you were working in? Well, you know, the 1960s, when Harold Wilson was Prime Minister, they had a brilliant cabinet. 1945, it was a brilliant group of people. Um, we were very lucky with the people we had. You know, what I keep saying to myself was, we, we really did not do enough to, to end child poverty. But, but we did uh, create child tax credits, Sure Start, the educational maintenance allowances, raised child benefit. We did try to do something, and that's been missing over the last 12. We didn't eliminate pension of poverty, but we came quite close with the pension credit, the winter allowance, and every other thing. Minimum income guarantee? Yeah, yeah the minimum income guarantee. We, we didn't do everything we wanted to do to help Africa and the poorest countries, but we raised overseas aid from 0.27% to 0.7%, which was a massive uh, increase, which is really the equivalent of two or three pence on income tax, was devoted to helping people in the poorest countries uh, of the world. So we didn't do enough, and it spurs me on to want us to do more in the next period of, uh, of government. And I, I do think I would... Uh, swap, uh, you know, 12 years of, of purity and opposition for 12 minutes in government and doing something, you know? One of your many great strengths is your oratory, and I remember your leader speeches at Labour Party conference, which were just these phenomenal, just lessons in oratory and your ability to really emotionally move an audience. I'm not sure if you ever sort of thought of your own ability like that? No, not really. I, I mean, <laughs> someone said, I think, in 2010, when things weren't going very well, uh, they quoted Shelley and said, I'd lost the art of communication, but not, alas, the gift of speech. <laughs> I, think, <laughs> I think that, I think that, that, that put me in my place. <laughs> so I, was, I was never terribly sure about uh, getting through to people. You see, one of my failures in the financial crisis was I thought we had the right policies and we certainly managed to stop a depression but I didn't communicate it well enough and I, I feel that that was one of the things that contributed to what happened at the election but I kept thinking to myself how do you do this because uh, Roosevelt during the Great Depression in America could do a radio broadcast at 8 p.m. on a Saturday night and everybody would listen you know, how would people have thought if I said, you know, strictly come dancing, please give way. I'm, I'm going to do a broadcast on the state of the economy. You know, and, and, and this was before social media, and I didn't have a, an outlet. Sarah, my, my, my wife, knows far more about uh, Twitter and has got more than a million followers on Twitter. And I never understood it, to be honest, and I didn't quite understand the power of that. Uh, and so I had no way of getting... You could do public meetings around the country and you could have a few people there, but getting through to people and explaining the crisis and that the banks, bankers had to uh, change their ways and we had plans to... to we nationalised, of course, two banks and, and we were going to deal with it and reassuring people who were worried about the savings. And it's still now, I think, the government should be out there explaining we have a plan to deal with these problems, but... I never managed to communicate properly, so whatever you say about oratory, I, I've got to take the blame for not being able to get that message across. I'm not, I mean, I, I'm not, people might actually disagree with that to some extent, but that must have been an incredibly frustrating feeling to feel that you're, you're leading the global response that's having a profound effect on people's lives. But, but, but the thing is, we were dealing... Look, for the last 30 or 40 years, uh, we've had what you might call neoliberal economics, and we were fighting hard against it. And that's the idea that the only way to deal with the economic problems is you deregulate, you liberalise, you privatise, and so on and so forth. I mean, it's the Liz Truss, Richie Sunak approach to the world that, you know, we've got to have tax cuts so that you can encourage people to work hard, et cetera, et cetera, and so on. And everybody knows that hasn't, hasn't, hasn't worked. In fact, in fact, one of my 
great uh, heroes was John Kenneth Galbraith, the economist, who wrote all these brilliant books about the, the, the economy. And he toured America and Europe and talked about them and, uh, all, all, all the time. And I met him in the House of Commons, and he told me that he'd been asked to speak at the 40th anniversary of the Austrian Republic. And the 40th anniversary was to celebrate the success of the Austrian Republic from 1945 to 1985. And they had this great, you know, Vienna Town Hall, famous for these concerts. They had all these great people there. And in the front row of the audience, and John Kenneth Galbraith was addressing them, was Professor von Hayek and, and all the other Austrian neoliberal school of economists. Uh, Hayek, Heilbronner, Mises, and so on. And Galbraith told me, he stood up and he said that he wanted uh, to thank uh, the Austrian economists, uh, Hayek, Milbron, sort of, because if they had not left Austria in 1945 and emigrated to America with their views, then Austria could never have enjoyed the high standards of living <laughs> and economic <laughs> progress that they enjoyed. And that's the kind of era we've been living through. And we were fighting against the tide all the time. I mean, America, even under the Democrats, was a pretty neoliberal in, in environment. And so what was exposed in 2009 was that this whole sort of edifice of neoliberal economics has failed. And, and it was basically, economics was dictating all your political decision-making. The central banks were the only game in town, people said. And this has now changed. I think people realise that this has failed. But we were on an uphill fight. And even when it came to, you know, I went across to see George Bush at the beginning of the, um, of the, 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 the financial crisis. And I met him in the White House. And I said, look, we've got to call together all the world leaders because we've got to have an agreed position to coordinate so we can get growth back into the world economy and we can get out of this crisis before it comes a depression. And, uh, and George Bruce said, uh, um, well, you have to talk to Hank Poulsen, who's the Treasury Secretary, and he's a bit tired at the moment. He's been, he's been very busy. I don't want to bother him at this time. And I said, we've got a world crisis. What are we going to do about it? And, uh, you know, they were still captivated by this idea that the markets will decide everything. And, of course, when you leave it simply to markets, uh, it doesn't work. You've got to have a balance between the role of markets, which, of course, encourages innovation and enterprise and so on, and the public interest, which is that there's got to be growth, it's got to be environmentally sustainable growth, and it's got to be equitable growth. And that's the sort of messages that were really difficult to get through and appeared where people thought that the world economy was going to work whatever, uh, without having to do anything about it. So we, we were in a very difficult time. I think people have seen through this now, and that's why I'm very confident that uh, the message that Keir Starmer and others are getting across about how they can create growth and fairness in the economy is, is going to work. There were some uh, highlights, though. To, I mean, your, your big speech has had some, some real highlights. In 2007, uh, your leader's speech, I think it was down in uh, Brighton or Bournemouth, I remember uh, you had John Smeaton, the baggage yeah, handler from yeah. Glasgow Airport. I was working for the party at the time, and he was stood near me, and he was the guy yeah. that, when terrorists had tried to set fire to Glasgow Airport, had kicked one of them in the balls. Yeah, yeah, and yeah, yeah, you yeah, introduced yeah. him as a national hero. And the, exactly. The place exactly. went wild. <laughs> it was good. That was the summer. I, I'd just become Prime Minister, and then, as you probably remember, there was this incident at Glasgow and in London, so there was a terrorist attack. Then I just uh, sort of started, and a few weeks later, there was foot and mouth. And then, and then we had um, uh, avian flu, and then we had, of course, the financial uh, crisis. So everything started to go wrong, and people probably thought that I was the cause of it all because it was going wrong. Uh, and, uh, and so we went through all these crises in the first few months, and John Speaton, of course, was the person who had stood up to the, uh, the, the attack at, at Glasgow Airport, and, and so he, ca he came to the, the, the conference. Uh, um, you know, conference speeches are quite, quite difficult because you're speaking to the Labour Party, and you're also speaking to the country. And th this is the problem that Liz Truss and Richie Sunak have got at the moment. They should be speaking to the country because it's the country that needs to hear, but they're just speaking to the Conservative Party. So you've got to get the balance, you've got to get the balance right. But that's, that's why at the moment we're only hearing about tax cuts and not hearing about how they might meet the economic challenges of the time. And when you think about your time in government, what, were your, what did you prefer? Did you prefer the 10 years as Chancellor or did you prefer the three years as Prime Minister? <laughs> I prefer 10 years as Prime Minister and three years as Chancellor. <laughs> <laughs> it's, uh, the, being, being Chancellor is a great honour. You know, they say there's only two kinds of finance minister. There are those who fail and there are those who get out just in time. <laughs> so, <laughs> I don't know if I was in that, in that, in that position. But, you know, and when things go well... Now, because we've made the Bank of England independent, things go well. It's always the, 
is because of the good judgment of the Bank of England governor. And if things go badly, it's always the fault of the Chancellor. So there's a new sort of uh, relationship. But yes, I, 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 but I did enjoy being uh, a Prime Minister, but it was at the time of a financial crisis. And look, every, every government across Europe got penalised uh, because obviously people's standards of living were affected by the crisis. We came out a lot quicker, I thought, but uh, then we had 10 years of austerity, which I think we could have avoided, and I wish I'd been in a position to help avoid. As well as having to do leader speeches, budgets were like the big centrepiece, really, of, of, of Chancellor. I mean, they were like cup finals. Gordon Brown budgets were like, what's going to happen? There's always going to be like a goal in the 90th minute or a hat-trick or five or something. Or, or an own goal. <laughs> <laughs> On the whole, they were very well received, weren't they? I mean, do, do any in particular... Yeah, Stay yeah. in the memory. The, the, the real trick of a budget is doing the budget on the first day, getting good publicity the next morning, and people actually forget about it for a bit. Because if it goes on for two days or three days, people find some fault in it, and that becomes the biggest, the biggest issue. So we always wanted to have the budget and then get, get, get on with some, with some, some, some of the other issues. But, but, you know, it's a great honour doing, doing these things. It's really funny because when, when I became Chancellor, I, um, I asked for a new budget box. The old budget box had been used by Gladstone, um, and it was, it was a bit battered, to be honest. Uh, and it had been going for 100 years. And there was a famous story about the Chancellor going to Ireland, Northern Ireland, with his budget box. And of course, Northern Ireland, they're always saying, where's the money, where's the money? And the wind blew, and the budget box blew open, and it was empty. And that was, <laughs> that was how the Northern Ireland people saw what the contribution of the Chancellor was. And I got the apprentices at Recite Dockyard in my constituency to, to, to do a new budget box. So we had a new budget box for, for the occasion. And it was to symbolise the New Deal for, for young people. But it's really interesting, because when I finished as Chancellor, it, um, uh, they sent me the budget box back. And so it's, I think it's in the, the National Library now. Uh, so they're back to using the Gladstone budget box, which is back to history. Well, it's a very cool thing to have done. I remember that being made, and, uh, and the sort of history around that was very, very special. There were budgets, there were leaders' speeches. Was there anything about being Prime Minister that was particularly difficult? What was the part you struggled with the most? I think Afghanistan, uh, look, look, Iraq. Um, I got us out of Iraq as quickly as possible. You know, America left Iraq at the end of 2011. We left Iraq in the first months of 2009. I just said to George Bush, we are leaving and we are going because I cannot see how we can make this uh, work and we're actually potentially doing more damage than good by staying. And it was a tragedy, of course, because so many people had lost their lives and you did not want to underestimate the contribution that people had made but it was the right thing to leave. Afghanistan was a more difficult problem because clearly there was still a terrorist element in, in, in Afghanistan that had to be countered. But I wanted to, to have a policy called Afghanization, which was that the Afghans themselves started to run the country. And so we, Afghan police, we, we've spent a lot in training them, Afghan army, but it was an incredibly difficult problem because for some reason, we had agreed, and it wasn't my decision, that we would help manage the most difficult province. And every week, I was having to write letters to, to soldiers, uh, wives and soldiers, uh, mothers who died. And I wrote individually to everyone where there was, where there was a death and a casualty. And it was heartbreaking to see so many young people, people die. Now, I, I think uh, that their contribution was immense. And I think we had uh, to protect that, that country against the return of terrorism. But of course... Uh, uh, Joe Biden made a very early decision to leave Afghanistan, which we had to do at some point, but perhaps the way we did it was not the, was not the best way of doing it. One of the other elements of being a leading politician in the public eye, Chancellor or Prime Minister, is that then you are depicted by actors and people like Rory Bremner and, and, and younger you, impressionists you. are available. I mean, have you got a good impression of you? Well, I don't think it's that good. The, the one thing... <laughs> <laughs> I'm not very good at myself either. <laughs> The one thing I always noticed you did at budgets was pluralise million and billion. So it's uh, from 82.9 billions in 2011-12 to 92.8 billions uh, in 2012-13. Mr Speaker, this is a Labour budget and I commend it to the Well, house. million sounds better than million, doesn't it? <laughs> well, it does actually. So million that... sounds better than billion. So was that a deliberate thing to make it sound better? Not that I remember. LAUGHTER <laughs> <laughs> Look, the great thing about uh, being Prime Minister and being uh, Chancellor is, is the people you do meet and, and their chance to work with people. And, and I've, got, I've got to say that the person that I admired most in all the time that I was in, in power was Nelson Mandela. Now, if you're looking at the, the sweep of history over the last three or four hundred years, 
the, the, one of the huge events of that time is, is South Africa ending apartheid and becoming a multiracial country. And I was incredibly lucky because I was able to meet Mandela when he was president and then meet him after he was, came out of prison, obviously, and then see him in retirement because we worked together with him and his wife, Gresham Michelle, on, on exactly the same causes because he took up the cause of poverty and, and, and education of children and devoted the rest of his life uh, to that. And I had some great times uh, uh, with, with, with Mandela. You know, we organized his um, 90th birthday party in London and he wanted to raise money for children's charities in South Africa. So he wanted it to be used to raise funds for uh, getting a, a children's hospital and children's schooling. And so all the Hollywood celebrities came to this event in London. And I'd, I'd just become prime minister in 2007. And Mandela was there with Grasha, Bill Clinton and Hillary Clinton. You had all the people from Will Smith, Forbes Whitaker, Emma Thompson. You had uh, all these people. And Mandela put up this, port, this, this letter he'd written, letter to a child, and he said it should be auctioned, the original, for, 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 for charity to raise, raise the money. And so Will Smith was the auctioneer at the time, and he sort of blew it completely, and someone else had to stand in. And eventually they, they went going up in all these different numbers, so 300,000, 400, going up in 100,000, 400, 5,000, 6,000, 700,000, and at 800,000, there was only two people left, Oprah Winfrey versus Elton John. <laughs> Uh, and they were sitting at this, exactly the same table as I was with Mandela and, and, and his wife. And so, uh, so Elton does 800,000, Opera does 900,000, Elton does 950,000, Opera does a million, uh, and then Elton pulls out. And then we have to tell Opera she's paying in pounds and not dollars. <laughs> <laughs> she kind of got something of a shock. And I told Mandela, where's the second letter? He'll pay 900. <laughs> uh, but, uh, and then, then we had this concept for Mandela. And it, it, was, it was an amazing occasion because all the pop stars were there. And some of you may remember this famous concert that was held in, in Hyde Park. And Mandela was, uh, was, I was sitting next to Mandela there. And uh, it was amazing because Grasha, his wife, was an amazing woman but she had decided that he should not drink any alcohol to preserve his health. And Mandela was hiding a bottle of champagne from his wife. And I thought, I thought, at 90, can you not be allowed to get one drink? So I was sort of conniving with him so he could drink. And she was coming in and looking at him saying, what, what are you doing? And he was there. Anyway, and then he went down to meet the artistes. And uh, you may have heard me say this before because it was amazing. He goes down to meet him, so he's being introduced to them all. And he comes to Amy Winehouse. And Amy Winehouse says, Mr. Mandela, she said, you and my husband have a great deal in common. And Mandela sort of flummoxed, doesn't know what to say. Yes, he said, both of you have spent 27 years, spent many, many years in prison. And of course, Mandela, Mandela's 27 years, and how many years her husband had, I don't know. But it was, uh, it was amazing, amazing. Okay. But when I first met Mandela, he... Um, he, and he said this to everybody who came from Britain. Ah, he said, representative of the British Empire. And when people ask him, what are you going to drink? It was always Cuban rum. But, you know, there's this story he told me. He was, and this sums up Mandela. He was in prison, obviously, for 27 years, as I said. He had tuberculosis. He was threatened with execution. And he said they were allowed very little possessions in their prison cell. But someone had got to him a portrait uh, a picture that was in the um, Tate uh, uh, Gallery in London. And it's called Hope. It was a picture called Hope. And it was by a British artist called Frederick Watts. And Frederick Watts was actually a very famous artist. And Hope was a picture. And when you see it, first of all, you think the picture is desolation because it's a young girl blinded trying to play a harp with all the strings broken. And you think, there's nothing more impossible than this. This is desolation. But of course, the message that Mandela took out of it and said to me, even in the most hopeless situations, you've got to have hope. And that's what Mandela conveyed to people. You know, the night before they left prison, Mandela called all the ANC prisoners together. You know, that day he became free and was out in the streets. He called them all together and said, look, and he told me this again. He said, look, South Africa could be a bloodbath we would be entitled to take revenge. All the discrimination, all the threats, all the executions, we could go out, but it would be a bloodbath. We would never be able to build a country that would work uh, for years, maybe centuries. So we've got to go out and we've got to preach the gospel of re reconciliation. And that was the measure of the man. That he, he, he knew that there was every reason for them to be angry, but he also knew that the only way was to forgive 
and to, and to move forward. And you saw that, of course, with the Springbok rugby team. But that was the essence of Mandela. So Mandela, didn't, he didn't deal with the detail. You know, he, he would get all these papers coming to him and he would, you know, but he had a vision. And, and if you have a vision of what you want to achieve, as Mandela did, and it was a multiracial South Africa, he did achieve it because he focused himself entirely and he forgot the uh, damage that had been done to him, the insults, he thought the recriminations, he was, wasn't going to engage in that. And he got on with doing things. That's what makes a great leader. And, uh, you know, I, I count it a real privilege to, to have known and to have worked with and to have met and visited Mandela at his home and in South Africa and also his home in Mozambique. And uh, I, I was also, uh, sadly, uh, at, his, at his funeral. But Mandela, that's the sort of visionary leader that, that countries need. But he's someone who not just had an impact when he was in charge, but after office was still a hugely impactful and uh, inspirational well, figure. I, well, I went to, I went to um, Mozambique on one occasion, I think about 2007, he was no longer president. And he came onto the stage, and this is typical of Mandela, he said, I am coming out of retirement because this is a huge cause and it's got to be supported, and I'm here to support it. And it was about education for every child, and he wanted every child. He said, I've climbed one mountain to deal with apartheid. This is a second mountain we have to climb to help every children rea child realise the potential. And so he did that, and then he said... And now at the end of this speech, I'm going back into retirement. <laughs> it's very funny. But what, what's it like being an ex-Prime Minister? Because you can sort of, you can define the role as you like it. And some of your predecessors have done very, very different things. And they intervene on different issues. You are clearly still deeply animated, specifically about poverty and inequality. There's a project that you do that I'm not sure anyone here actually knows about. But I think I'm right in the way I'm describing this. All the excess Amazon stock in Scotland, you effectively get hold of and redistribute to people who need it. I mean, I don't think there's any other former world leader doing that. Well, we've got, we've got 12 companies, not just Amazon. And this is going to be something for the future. You see, all these companies have surplus goods and they're throwing them away. Uh, and we're saying repurpose them, allow us to give them to people in need. And it's not only anti-pollution because you're preventing destruction, it's also anti-poverty. So we have, uh, in the last six months, and this is in Fife, and it's a pilot in Fife, and it's going to go to Scotland, and then it's going to go to the whole of Britain. And it's not just Amazon, I say, it's, we've got the co-op, Scotland, we've got lots of other companies in, in, involved in this. But in the last six months, we've managed to give 200,000 goods to about 30,000 families. It's worth about four or five million pounds of, of, of goods. And we think we can do much more, and we think this could grow to being a, a huge amount of goods. Now, the problem is that charity cannot do enough to, to, to make up the difference. If you lose your benefits, if you've lost your uh, universal uh, credit being cut by £1,000 and so on and so forth, we can't make up all that difference. But it does show that in a county like Fife, where I, where I come from and where I grew up and I was at school, and I've seen so much uh, uh, poverty that needs to be addressed, we can do something to help those people in poverty. And we want to bring this project to Edinburgh and the Lothians and then to Tayside and then to the rest of Scotland, and it will come round Britain. But there's so many companies that are throwing away goods uh, that are being wasted that could be repurposed and used for families. And I'm not, I'm, not I'm not just talking about food because we can help food banks. We've now got 400 charities drawing on this uh, facility. Uh, I'm talking about um, uh, toiletries, I'm talking about uh, beds, I'm talking about bedding, I'm talking about uh, home furnishings, I'm talking about children's clothes and clothes. All these things are now available uh, and they're, 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 there's thousands of these goods that can actually be got to people who, who really need it. And I, I do want to involve lots of Edinburgh charities in this as we move forward in the next few months. But it says something about your character, that that's what you're choosing to spend life after office doing you know there's there are lucrative lines of work elsewhere and obviously they're totally legitimate and you can do those things in order to you know pay the mortgage or whatever but the fact that you're actually at the heart of this thing as a former prime minister i mean there must be people who actually can't believe that gordon brown's in the no, middle no, of a warehouse you know <laughs> logging all you know these toasters and kettles that no one yeah, wants. I, I i don't think i don't think they trust me to organize it very well. <laughs> but uh Look, I, I decided when I left office, I, it's the greatest honour in your life to be able to, to be a member of parliament and to be able to serve the public in that way and to try your best. But I did not want uh, public service to be a platform for private gain. So anything I do, I give it to charity. And I'm not interested in, in sort of uh, lucrative directorships or anything else. That's not where I am. But I do think uh, that we can make a difference uh, when it comes to uh, poverty in this country. And I do think, you know, you know...
I've never been able to bear the idea of, of children being denied almost permanently uh, the things that we take for granted. And it, it, will, it, it will distort their lives. It, it, it makes them less able to do the things that they ought to be able to do. It destroys, potentially, their job chances. Uh, we've got to make it our aim again. We had an aim to abolish child poverty, and we came close uh, to doing that by 2010. Uh, we've got to reinstate that aim, that no child uh, should be denied the chance to realise the potential, and any civilised society should be in a position to guarantee that children have the best possible starts in life. I know it's very difficult for politicians to have a, a sense of how the public feel about them or what their legacy is or, or how they're viewed. But I hope you realise that the things you did in office had a, had a profoundly positive impact on, on people like me and that you should be very proud of what you used politics for. You know, we've lived for so long, well, certainly in the last few years, under an individual that seems to have only used high office purely for selfish fulfilment, almost an ideology-free individual. It's been immensely frustrating to watch. Whatever things you got right or wrong, the, the big things that you got right kept people alive, got more people longer educations, made us safer as a country. I hope for whatever, you know, you said you felt guilty about 2010 earlier. I hope that that's not your only feeling about your time in office, and I hope that you can feel proud for some of the... Th There'll be people here tonight, including myself, whose lives were changed well, because I, you were Chancellor You're very kind. I mean, look, I wish we'd been able to do more. When we introduced the child tax credit, which I think helped a lot of families, because you, once you had a minimum wage, you could have a child tax credit that could boost the incomes of people who were on low pay as well as people who were on, on benefits and, and in poverty. But we never properly explained it to people. So, so people were getting 60, 70, 80 pounds extra a week, and in some cases 100 pounds extra a week as a result of the child tax credit. And it was transforming the lives and the opportunities to do things, particularly single parent mothers who were working 16 hours and couldn't work anymore because of child care responsibilities, but could get a decent income because we had child tax credits. But we couldn't explain it to people properly. I mean, people know what a tax cut is, they know what a social security benefit is, a child benefit, they know if that's right. But when you try to explain the child tax credit as an addition to your child benefit, it was very difficult to do so, and it varied, of course, between different families. And I still think uh, that that was one of the biggest changes we brought about. Uh, and, you know, the universal credit that's now being introduced is diminishing the value of this child tax credit all the time to the point at which, uh, of course, and child benefit has not been raised substantially since 2010, we, we will have five million children in poverty by this winter. And five million children who are deprived of their life chances is something that no government, no matter whether you're conservative, labor, liberal, whatever you are, no government should be prepared to accept. And that's why today we've got 60 churches and faith groups, as well as the mayors, the first minister of Wales, we've got all the anti-poverty uh, charities. They're all saying the same thing. You've got to act now. You've got to deal with this problem. And if you don't deal with it now, you'll not be able to have uh, any benefits rise in October because it will take time for the computers to be adjusted and people will not be able to turn up their heating and not be able to afford their food. So this is uh, a, a, almost an emergency that has got to be addressed uh, immediately and that's what I'm going to devote the next uh, few months to, to trying to press the government to take action on this. Gordon, there's so much more we could talk about. We're, we're going to have to, before we wrap up, there's one last question I want to ask you. The, obviously, many things that you care about and would like to see happen in the future. What is more likely... Labour win the next election, or Scotland qualify for the next World Cup? <laughs> if Labour wins the next election, Scotland will qualify for the next World Cup. <laughs> Gordon, this has been absolutely sensational. Um, I'm sure I speak on behalf of everyone here when I say this has been... A, this is, not only has it flown by, this has just been such a phenomenal experience in so many ways. Thank you all for coming. Uh, before we go, please thank everyone here at the McEwen Hall and at Avalon who made today possible. Thank you. But ladies and gentlemen, Gordon Brown! Well, there you go, Gordon Brown. That absolutely flew by. And of course, whenever you're interviewing someone of that stature, someone who's been Prime Minister and Chancellor, there's so much more that you want to talk about. So I hope that at some point in the future, whenever that is, uh, Gordon can come back on the show because he's a phenomenal storyteller. I mean, that story about the England-Scotland game is so funny. His delivery is perfect. 
And again, as I said at the start, everything that you would want, um, insights into what it was like to be Chancellor and Prime Minister. And uh, on top of that, just that the fact that he's still so animated about changing the world is something that's, that is just so inspirational. And um, it's just amazing, you know, it, with all these... With, this, with that level of guests, when you're talking about former prime ministers and, and senior cabinet ministers, and it's very similar to um, the Michael Heseltine and Neil Kinnock episodes where you're dealing with people that have really shaped our country and have dominated politics for such a long time. And there are actually very few people in that in that kind of group who are simultaneously very, very talented and also were at the top for a long time that really, really shaped the country we live in. And what an absolute treat that was. And and I'm sure you could feel it coming through your headphones or your speaker or whatever you listen to that. The atmosphere in the room from start to finish was just total electricity. So thank you to all of you who came. It was a very special afternoon. And as I said at the start, the next two in the Edinburgh Festival are Anasawa on the 15th and Joanna Cherry on the 22nd of August. And then when we come back to London on the 19th of September, Emily Maitlis and John Sopel. On the 3rd of November, Mick Lynch. On the 17th of October, Matt Hancock. And on the 7th of November, David Dimbleby. Loads more guests to be announced. Thank you for downloading this. Please do share it far and wide and leave a written review. And I'll see you next time. Ta-ra.